The Space God Memoirs. Season 2, Episode 28 Around me stretched a cavern, its orange and yellow crystals aglow in artificial lamplight that still shined after 300 years. My feet stood upon a hatched metal platform around the cavern's sole structure, an unassuming lab building of black concrete, without markings or windows, only a set of wide hangar doors big enough to fit a small starship in. This is it, I said to my companions, we're all stepping out of the octahedral craft we had flown into here. Jabir leapt out of the octa immediately, gazing curiously about the chamber. Demania stepped out slower, her eyes still drawn upward at the tunnel we'd entered from. We need to perform this mission quickly, stated Zarathra, stepping fully out of the octa. My last readings told me that the Veyr are nearing the spot we found on the surface. One of their capital ships is straight overhead. There is no telling how soon they'll find us. I halfway wanted to argue with her that we shouldn't have been there in the first place. Not with our mission's secrecy already compromised. We were here to retrieve the blueprints for the hyper-shift engine before they did. That same tech they had been so desperately hunting me down to get a hint of. This ancient lab's location had lurked within my past-life memories for generations, hiding an old technology that these galactic factions would do anything to obtain. And here we were probably leading them straight to it, but I knew it was a bit late to turn around. We enter through those hangar doors. I pointed the way. Demania raised her hand. The octocraft began to hover in the air, pilotless, and quickly floated just out of view, behind a ten-foot-high cluster of topaz. It would be best not to have it out in the open should the Ver land here. I grunted in acknowledgement at her kino trick, but said nothing instead making strides towards the hangar door. My companions followed. As we approached it, the ancient metal-plated door began to rise upward, into the ceiling, emitting a squeaky, grindy noise as centuries of dust and rust were dislodged. Directly within the door stood the docking bay, where two ancient starships lay, their disc-shaped metal frames oxidized. Fluorescent lighting came on automatically as we entered, showing the collapsed shape of a blue, Reuven-form robot between them. I remembered that thing greeting Janessa when she first entered the lab. Now it lay powered down beside the junked-out ships. I continued on, ushering my companions beside me, as I headed for a door in the back of the room. It opened with a squeak, and I looked upon a wide room full of ancient computers and their monitors. They had been new when I last saw them, but were now all cracked and rusted over, covered in the dust of ages. At the opposite end of the chamber, the podium Dr. Muntaki had talked from was now toppled on its side. Several other doors stood here. Somewhere below lay the engine, which would itself contain computerized data of its blueprint. That's what we needed, and we needed it quick. I scanned my memories from Janessa. The pilot had worked in this lab for several years. She had been in the engine chamber three times during her studies, 
and it was through the furthest door on the right. I walked over to it. The door was stuck, its metal frame having shifted into the wall years ago. But I flicked my twist blade out and sliced forward. One good hack where the door met the frame was enough to dislodge it. The super strong nanite enforced metal easily hacking through the old junky door. It swung open, revealing a corridor beyond. Hmm, this looked familiar. A short concrete hall that led to a metal hatch, and set diagonally into the construction, set with a lock and a sensor. And unlike the rest of this lab, that hatch was made of uranium steel, strongest metal on Arubis, and not something my twist blade would cut through. From my pre-life memories, it led directly into the engine room itself. This would be quick. I stepped through the door into the hallway. Just then, I heard a loud rumbling noise from behind me. I turned around to see my companions, all three staring at the outer wall of the lab, the source of the racket. The wall was shaking, and in seconds I watched as countless cracks began to spiderweb across its concrete surface. Then the wall, all fifty feet of it, crumbled away. Its remains falling outward as if some unseen force had pulled it. Standing in the debris was a being, a tall and spindly figure in charcoal black, his face sunken and skeletal, his head crowned in a mass of horns, his body clothed in ridged armor built to match his inky flesh. The man stood there, his hands open at his sides, staring directly at us with red eyes aglow. Behind him were a cadre of red-clad troopers. Hold these scrag. It was Lord Gervath himself, the same one I had seen in my visions during a test flight, whose image had threatened us on the Amethyrium, the guy who was said to rule the planet from the eye. From within came a tightness, a tension, a pressure. While I had never been raised religious, Burge had. This was who his father had always told him was the High God. I gulped doing my best to suppress the heavy feeling creeping up on me. No way I was going to bow down in adulation of this yug, God or not. This is the end, Nyar, said Gervath with a deep yet crackly voice that seemed to crawl across the chamber and into my mind. As I have stated before, this world is ours. Your continued presence here violates our accords. And you will be terminated and removed from it. Gravath raised his left arm and there was a crackling electrical noise as tendrils of gray-colored energy began to snake from it. The Fizar troopers behind him stepped forward into the room. My companions reacted immediately. Zerathra's curvy blades flashed into existence in her hands and I could see the air warping around her. Jabir stepped into combat stance, his talons expanding out into lengthier claws. Demania stood calm, but placed her hands in front of her, a shimmering ball of light appearing between them as she let out a breath. Her eyes began to glow with the same white radiance. My mind raced with possibilities of what I could do to help. Go, Kef, commanded Zerathra with a thought. Complete the mission. You are no good to us here. Well, that settled it. I turned away, hearing a loud percussion behind me. 
I ignored it and ran for the hatch. Memories came back as I looked over its uranium steel surface, and set with a handprint that looked a whole lot like the activation panel on a Reuben starship. I touched it, and immediately sent the thought of open to it. I hope this thing recognized me. Janessa Vree might have had access to this place, but that had been a long time ago, and I wasn't exactly her. Thankfully, it seemed my thought pattern was close enough. The hatch clicked open. I lifted it and ducked inside, lowering my body into a tube that descended diagonally into the ground. From behind came the sound of electropikes going off, accompanied by several thuds and crashes. I briefly wished my companions well. Could they handle Gurvath on their own? I shut the hatch behind me, and all sound vanished, the dense uranium chamber silencing all. Green lights appeared in the narrow stairwell as I followed it down, near 50 meters, the entire way plated in that same dense alloy. Soon I reached the end of the diagonal stairway, and it flattened out into a somewhat wider hall that led forward, lit by the same eerie green lights from above that flickered in ancient bulbs somehow still intact. As I walked, I could see the walls and set with metal tubes that likely concealed wires, ducts, and whatever ran the energy from the reactor ahead. A slight hum rang from them. Yeah, this thing had been turned on and was still working. The old dock had built it to last, whatever good it was doing. From behind me came a ringing sound, as the uranium tube I had just walked through shook from some force above. I felt queasy. Jabir had just told me how Gurvath was basically a god, thanks to all the Atra he got from Aruvis. What was he capable of? Not too late for me to do anything about it, so I continued to walk forward, until the hallway ended in a bell-shaped room. In the center was a wire sphere, placed between two metal columns that came from the floor and ceiling. The hyper-shift engine. It was all encased, but from the subtle resonance that rang throughout the room, I could tell it was definitely working. I walked up to the device. Up close it sang a whistling hum, the result of the engine inside spinning as it pulled and pushed the energy, shifting it from dimension to dimension in a constant cycle. It was kind of pretty, almost musical. I had a tingle across my skin just being this close to it, though there was no more Atra here than usual. I bent over and touched my hand to the panel just below the engine's center, pushing it against a barely visible notch. The panel sprang loose with a click, revealing a compartment where a tiny blue metal sphere sat, covered in patterned notches. An info ball, how the pre-ret society kept its data. I grabbed it between two fingers and removed it from its slot. The panel immediately pulled back, clicking closed. A light shot from the engine's pillar, right next to where the ball had been housed. It was a projection, a hologram, hovering in the air before my eyes. A three-dimensional image of a device, a set of tubes twisting around a central core where liquid spun and churned between rotating spheres. The engine, in all of its specifications, the hologram covered in detailed equations, measurements, and instructions. In another second, the hologram vanished. The light went out, but shortly activated again. A form flickered into being in front of me, a person, clad in the scholarly robes of old Aruvis. At first translucent, but it gradually gained a semi-solidity to it. It was Doc Muntaki. I recognized the face from my past life regression. The gentle eyes, the subtle smile, the shoulder-length hair. 
The doctor looked my way, their shape flickering a bit, the colors of their clothing and skin washed out to varying shades of brown. Uh, hi, I said, waving at the image. Can you hear me? Welcome, friend, said the hologram. It's a voice Moontaki's, but crackly and distant. If you are listening to this recording, I have since moved on to other realms. The body I once utilized has long ago gone to dust. I am confident I will remain, in some form, yet likely far removed from this place, from you. Still, if you are able to access this chamber, and this hologram is playing for you, then your psionic energy signature is on the approved list. Welcome. Hold up, I said, raising my hand. Are you, uh, interactive? I knew the Nyar could make interactive holograms, at least. To a point, yes, answered the image. Well, I do not possess all the knowledge and cognitive abilities the actual Dr. Mundaki held. I was given certain key details and facts that I can inform you of. Huh, interesting, I said to myself. I moved my left hand over the image and touched Muntaki on the shoulder, not surprised to feel nothing, my hand passing through the flickering figure. Anyway, what is this place exactly? This chamber houses the Hyper Shift Engine. Its specifications are contained in the recording device and set in the base. It was designed as a prototype for a source that would theoretically power a large city indefinitely. My readings indicate that it still does power this facility. Most likely it currently does the world no good. Just the opposite, perhaps. What do you mean? I am now nearly certain that I am to blame for what has happened to our world. The doctor's normally neutral expression took on hints of sadness. The hyper-shift engine must be what has drawn the invaders to us. It is the frequency it emits. It touches upon the place that they utilize. And they have means of detecting it. Detecting us. Yeah, kinda got that. The shift engines brought the Veyr to Arubis, or at least drew their attention. They don't do a lot of shift tech themselves, but I think they use what you called sub-base for their communications. But the thing I don't totally get is this. Why do they care? I too have asked myself why they would care that we utilize such things. What does it mean to these Type 1 civilizations that we should acquire our own technology that's primitive in comparison to their own? Maybe they just don't want us to have nice stuff. Those scraggers see us Ruvens as a resource, a way to get the energy they need like a herd of Dugga. I have translated the communications that they give to their ever-growing cults on our world. The Veyer, or what the cultists call the Lords Beyond, refer to our technology as being blasphemous, forbidden, dark. They claim that it utilizes energies that were never meant for us simple beings, energies that would destroy us should they be unleashed. Nah, that's gotta be a load of crap. Religions aren't exactly the best source of truth. In the past I would have railed against such belief-based ravings as the blabbering of fools. But there may be a kernel of truth to it all. The ship tech, when used in its full capacity, creates a cycle that continuously reaches into other dimensions to harvest the theoretically infinite supply of energy there. In a certain sense, it touches on places that are dark, obscure, unknown. I am not certain in what may lurk within these other realms, other dimensions. Some of them may very well contain vast horrors, blasphemous things that lurk in shadowy realities. This I do not know, 
but perhaps the invaders are opposed to our technology for this very reason. I don't know. That might be a bit legit, but it can't be the whole truth. Those bastards are looking for it still. There was a distant rumble. The ceiling shook with a vibration from above. But I do not feel that our engine is a thing of darkness, continued the doctor's image. I was given the inspiration for it by being of light, the entity who later referred to themselves as Ios Garadel. Wait a second. Ios Scragging Garadel? The Nyar Elder. What did he have to do with all this? Zerothra's former love. Her mentor. The guy I'd seen that statue of back on Gaxinal 4. The same one who had vanished eons ago after seeking to commune with a sentient star. It was he who supplied the hints I needed in order to fully develop the technology, and who told me that it would one day spark a revolution in both energy and awareness. One that would change not only my homeworld, but countless worlds beyond it. I was told that it would free the galaxy from the tyranny of a closed system. But who was he, really? And what was his endgame? This hologram can tell you nothing further on the topic. It answered, shaking its head. Ugh, limited scragging program. Anyway, I said, tapping the little orb I had in between my fingers. I can take this thing and go? It contains everything I need to reproduce the tech? Yes, all the data on the engine is contained within. The actual Dr. Alirin Muntaki's last command to this artificial intelligence was to await an individual with the correct personal frequency and entrust the data to them. Keep it safe. And why am I one of those individuals? Was it because my thought patterns matched an old pilot, Janessa Vri? The hologram flickered. This cannot be currently determined. The computers linked with the engine contain a list of personal frequencies that are allowed access. Yours was among them, with full permissions. I sighed. That's infuriatingly vague. But yeah, I guess that's all I'm getting out of you. I apologize for this lack of full information. Perhaps the true Alir and Muntaki could tell you more. 300 years later, you think the real Doc's still alive? In their lifetime, the Doctor saw that reality was multidimensional, that the universe was a place of endless possibilities, that one may transcend the bounds of what most people considered physical. Perhaps, among the vastness of infinity, you may one day meet again. The hologram started to fade, flickering for a moment before flashing out of existence. I took the info ball that was still resting in my right hand and put it in my pocket. Then I stood there, listening as the sound of the engine slowly wound down, the frequency growing softer and softer until I could no longer hear it. Shortly after that, the lights began to dim until the chamber was lit only by a faint reddish glow, probably powered by some backup battery somewhere. This was done. The engine was off after hundreds of years in operation. There was a chill running through me. That hologram had been waiting for me. Like it had known I would be here. This place had my energy signature, mine in specific. Was it only because I had lived some distant life as a pilot based out of this compound? Or was there something more to it? Ios Garadal. That sneaky scragger. He had been the one to give the shift engine to the Ruvens. But why? 
Wasn't Z's ex supposed to be the absolute pinnacle of a good Nyar boy? And I still didn't know what was so scragging important about this tech other than some cryptic talk of revolution. I shrugged it off. More shit to discuss with Z when all this vare dug-a-crap was over, and we actually had a moment to talk. Whatever was going on here, it definitely went deeper than they were telling me. Maybe even deeper than they knew. As I stood there under the red light, I knew it had to all be connected. The shift tech, the Nyar and the Veyer, Ios Garadel, and even me. How? I had no idea. But there was a tightness in my gut. Knotted and tense. It was like something really big and really bad was about to happen. I spun around, turning to the room's entrance, as if drawn by some inner nudging. She stood staring at me with her bright magenta eyes that shone like headlights in the dimness. Her berry red skin was even redder in the room's redness. Her hair was aglow with subtle, flickering flames, and on her cute, impish face, there was a grin. Our eyes met, and there was stillness. Minali of the Shifting Visage, that Veyer girl who had attacked us back on Gaxnel 4, the pilot of that weird flower ship. How had she gotten down here? It didn't matter. Just like before, there was an infuriating familiarity about her, like she was an old flame, a forgotten friend, like I'd somehow known her in the deepest recesses of my dreams, or in the vast, unremembered past before Aruvis. For a long moment, I was stunned, entranced by those magenta eyes, so close I could smell her sweet, spiced fragrance in my nostrils. Then I spotted the glint of a fire, a burning blade in her supple hands. I broke my trance and went to reach for my own blade, sheathed. Before my hand could even touch its holster, I felt Manali's fiery sword entering my chest, plunging straight into my heart. A surge of sudden pain, my vision fading, the sound of her giggling laughter above me. <laughs> then a disconnect. I was dead. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Space God Memoirs. Space God is written, performed, and produced by A.M. Arctos. Original musical score by Alpha Colors. Various sound effects created by Industrial Strength Records Incorporated. Please support this podcast by following, rating, and sharing on your favorite social media site. For further info on Space God, its creator, and various other opinions, musings, and thoughts, go to www.spacegodmemoirs.com or follow me on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. If you enjoyed the Space God Memoirs, please consider supporting us by becoming a patron. Check out the Patreon link in our description to learn more.